0: This is a Rooster Teeth production. January 15, 2009. US Airways Flight 1549, an Airbus A320 with 155 people on board, is taking off from New York's LaGuardia Airport bound for Charlotte, North Carolina. Less than two minutes after takeoff, at approximately 2,818 feet in the air, the plane flies through a flock of Canadian geese which are ingested into both plane engines, causing them to lose power. Without any engine thrust at less than 3,000 feet above New York City, the crew has little time to weigh their options. They ultimately decide to ditch the plane into the Hudson River, and miraculously, all of those on board survive. Exactly what happened that led to this event? What was going on in the cockpit? How often do planes hit birds? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hey everyone, welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hi. I've been I I wanted to ask about birds. Birds. It's time we do it.
1: It's been on my head. I was like, man, I know their birds are always around in the air. <laughs> and then like how yeah so this i'm glad, I'm glad we're doing this because this has been actually something that's been bothering or not bothering i've just been wondering about for a really long time i've been like birds when are we going to cover birds
0: this is our christmas eve episode so it's a christmas gift to you uh chris yay <laughs> we're to talk about birds this is a, a well known oh, before we get to the incident uh i want to remind everyone to follow us on social media at black Box down pod on twitter and instagram we put uh we place place we post we post tons of great photos and videos and stuff that we can't adequately convey in the audio format uh go check it out thousands of people are already there don't you want to join in yeah join the party so this is a very well-known incident this is uh, the u.s airways flight that uh landed on the hudson river tom hanks yeah there's a movie made out of it tom hanks yeah. played
1: the captain he plays a lot of captains
0: yeah <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, I think a lot of people are familiar with the overall story. So we're going to try to like dig into some of the specifics, and we're going to really talk about birds quite a bit. Obviously, like you said, you wondered how often do birds play a factor into this. So I, I looked this up, and I found an interview with uh, a wildlife biologist named Richard Dolbeer, And uh, he's a wildlife biologist who specializes in bird strikes.
1: It, it, bird, wait, bird like, strikes is in like, bird airplane strikes? Correct.
0: Sorry. <laughs> yeah, but that, that's what it's referred to when a plane hits a bird.
1: I was like, it could be like evil birds attacking (laughs) or birds that have
0: unionized and they they don't want to work anymore so this is a wildlife biologist and his specialty like i said is when birds hit airplanes Uh and according to richard dolbeer in the last 20 years there have been approximately 210 aircraft destroyed because of collisions with birds
1: oh my god
0: and uh, more than 200 people have died in bird strike related accidents since 1988
1: okay i would bet most of those are small planes though
0: correct you know, you hear 210 planes. That's a lot. Well, that's a lot of them are like single engine planes. And yeah. it, it doesn't happen on uh, big passenger jets uh, as frequently. In this episode, we're going to get into some of the procedures that airports have to mitigate these kinds of incidents. So we're going to get into that a bit later. I just wanted to give you those statistics up at the top of the show, just so you okay. know that going into it. U.S. Airways flight 1549 was a passenger flight from LaGuardia, uh, like I said, in New York City. It was ultimately going to Seattle, Washington, but it was going to go to Charlotte, North Carolina first. Okay, And it was on January 15th, 2009. And uh, I remember this incident. <laughs> uh, I'll give a, a personal story. I was walking to lunch. It was a late lunch. I was walking to a late lunch with some co-workers of mine that day. And uh, w- one of the coworkers commented like, it's been a while since we've heard anything about, like, about a plane crash or anything and uh, we got to the restaurant, and it was on all the TVs in the restaurant. Like it had just happened while we were walking to lunch. What? Who said that? Bernie Burns, uh, one of uh, <laughs> one of the guys that we work with. He said that, and then we were walking. We were in downtown Austin. We were walking to a uh, Buffalo Wild Wings to eat lunch because our office was close by. Oh and my we god! And walked into the Buffalo Wild Wings, and it was on all the all the uh, televisions in that restaurant.
1: How appropriate that it was Wild Wings. Oh, that's true. I never I never thought about that.
0: Yeah. So. I'm sure everyone knows, uh, well, everyone who's interested in plane incidents knows the flight was crewed by Captain uh, Chesley Sullenberger, who was 57 years old, and he had 19,663 flight hours. Ton of flight experience. The first officer was Jeffrey Skiles, who actually had more hours. He had 20,727 flight hours, but he had only 37 hours in this particular kind of plane, the Airbus A320. There is a little bit of backstory there. There was like some problems with um, the the pilot, I believe with the pilots union. Uh, so normally Jeffrey Skiles would be a captain, but because of like crew shortages, he had to be first officer on this flight. Gotcha. Just a, like a weird side note here. So it was obviously it was two very experienced pilots, both with about 20,000 hours of flight time. Uh, it just so happened, like I said, the first officer had very few hours in this particular plane. In fact, I believe he had just finished his training, his airworthiness training on the Airbus A320. Oh, Yeah, this was one of his first flights. He was a pilot flying when this plane took off. So this is one of his first flights, actually flying an A320 with you know passengers like after having fully certified on this plane. But again, tons of flight experience. <laughs> this guy, yeah, he, yeah. he wasn't like some guy who just finished school and was coming out. He had tons of uh, years of experience. So the airplane that was uh, involved in this incident was an almost 10-year-old Airbus A320 that had 25,241 flight hours and 16,299 cycles. And a cycle is just going from the ground, taking off, pressurizing at altitude, and coming back down and landing. So there were three flight attendants on board and 150 passengers. At 3.24 p.m., LaGuardia Air Traffic Control cleared flight 1549 for takeoff on runway 4 and to climb to an altitude of 5,000 feet. And like I mentioned, First Officer Skiles was the one who was flying. A minute later, the flight was cleared to climb to 15,000 feet.
1: Hey, I actually have a question. Mm -hmm. You said first officer was flying. Is that typical for the first officer to like do the takeoff and not the captain? So they'll share duties.
0: Uh, Sometimes the captain will be flying and sometimes the first officer is the one who's flying. I believe they had done a couple of flights earlier in the day. Okay. And uh, Captain Sullenberger was the one flying on those. And now they were trading off and uh, first officer Skiles was the one flying here. They'll normally refer to them as the pilot flying and the pilot monitoring. So the one flying is the one who actually has control and the monitoring helps with all the other tasks. So at 3.27 p.m., the cockpit voice recorder recorded Captain Sullenberger saying bird. A second later, while the plane was at 2,818 feet, the cockpit voice recorder recorded the sound of thumps and thuds followed by a shuddering sound. The engines then started to roll back, and both the captain and first officer quickly realized they were running out of engine power. So basically, they were going back to idle. They weren't producing any thrust anymore. Captain Sullenberger then tried to start the engine ignitions, and two seconds later, decided to turn on the auxiliary power unit. He then took control of the plane and told First Officer Skiles to pull out the QRH, which is the quick reference handbook. And that's basically like their quick checklist, like (laughs) what to do actually what he's getting at here is he's telling First Officer Skiles to pull out the QRH to look through the engine restart procedure. And in the QRH, it's a three-page checklist that they have to go through in order to restart the engines. They then contacted Air Traffic Control and declared mayday, saying that they hit birds, lost thrust in both engines, and would be turning back to LaGuardia.
1: So, and they're only, you said 2,000 feet up at this point?
0: Almost 3,000 feet.
1: They don't have a lot of time.
0: No, <laughs> there's not a lot of time. Uh, and we're going to get to that here in just a bit, about how little time they have. You can listen, actually, to this um, tower uh, control conversation if you go to YouTube or just look it up. You can hear the actual conversation that these pilots have with air traffic control. It's funny because initially air traffic control wants to clarify. They ask them, which engine did you lose power in? And they have to clarify both. Oh, uh, So it's really, you know, scary. Yeah. Air traffic control acknowledged your transmission and instructed them to fly a heading of 220 degrees. Both pilots then began that dual engine failure checklist. So they start going through that checklist that I was talking about in the QRH. This isn't in the, um, the recordings you can hear, but on the cockpit voice recorder, I'm going to read you a little transcript. Uh, first officer Skiles says, he's reading the checklist. If fuel remaining engine mode selector ignition, and they're basically telling Captain Sullenberger what to do. Captain Sullenberger mm-hmm. replies, ignition. Skiles says, thrust levers confirm idle. Sollenberger replies, idle. Skiles says, airspeed optimum relight 300 knots. We don't have that. And Sullenberger says, we don't. So at this point, the checklist tells them they need 300 knots of speed and they're not going that fast.
1: In order to restart the engine? Correct. That's like, that is a mandatory, you have to have that much speed? Well, it says optimum relight.
0: So I think under ideal circumstances, that's what you want. But I believe they were not anywhere near 300 knots. And, you know, ideally, if they have more altitude if they're, you know, they're angling down towards the Earth, they can gain speed, but they're already so low, they don't have the time to do that. Mm. Because the dual engine failure checklist was designed assuming that the failure would occur at an altitude of 20,000 feet or higher. Oh, no. So, I mean, there's no way they could reach that speed at all. They would, So they, at this point, they're kind of stuck. Stuck for a very short time. Right. So at 3.28 p.m., air traffic control asks if they want to land on runway 13 at LaGuardia, but Captain Sullenberger replies, we're unable, we may end up in the Hudson. If you've ever seen like a map of New York, and if you've never been there, like the Hudson is the river like on the west side of Manhattan. It kind of separates New York and New Jersey. A few seconds later, the crew continued going through their emergency checklist and the left engine started to power up again a little bit. A few seconds later, air traffic control requested for flight 1549 to join left traffic for runway 31, to which Sullenberger replied, unable. That's all he said. So the <laughs> air traffic controls trying to give him instructions, and Sullenberger
1: just replies, unable. You know, he's, Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they're like, uh, you know, instead of landing in the the Hudson, you know, maybe try it. No. Yeah, we've got an airport <laughs> right over here, unable. <laughs> and I've seen um, uh,
0: interviews with the tower controller he was talking to. And the controller says, he totally understands. He knows, like, yeah. he, d- he doesn't take it the wrong way that the captain's being short with him. He knows he's got his own stuff that he's going through. He, like, the tower controllers is there just to try to facilitate whatever he can to give options to the captain. Air traffic control responded by letting them know runway four was also available. And Sullenberger <laughs> replied, saying they were not sure if they could make it to any runway. Sullenberger asked if there was anything to their right in New Jersey. Remember, I said this river separates New York and New Jersey. So Sullenberger's asking if there's any airports to his right in New Jersey he could get to. And air traffic control says Teterboro Airport was off to their right, which is a small airport. Mm -hmm. And uh, air traffic control asks if they want to try it. And Sullenberger says yes. So air traffic control, you know, starts trying to coordinate with Teterboro. And uh, while Sullenberger is communicating with air traffic control, First Officer Skiles is still working through the checklist, trying to get those engines working again. At 329, Sullenberger made an announcement over the PA system saying, this is the captain, brace for impact.
1: Not what you want to hear. no. Wait wait, 3.29. Okay, what what time did
0: they take off? They were cleared for takeoff at 3.24. Five minutes. Yeah, at 3.27 is when the cockpit voice recorder recorded uh, Sullenberger saying bird. So three minutes after they were cleared for takeoff, they encountered the bird. Two minutes after that, Sullenberger saying brakes for impact. Jeez. And I saw an interview with one of the passengers who was on this flight. And, you know, he says, you know, in he, they have no idea what's going on in the cabin. You know, they've heard the noises. They know that something's wrong. And uh, he said that he heard, like, the captain started making an announcement, you know, that, that PA system kick on. And uh, he said his initial thought was that the captain was going to come on and tell him that they were going to have to return to LaGuardia and something was wrong. And then when he heard the captain say brace for impact, that's what it said in. Like the severity of the situation they were in. Yeah. He said his first thought was, what does brace for impact mean? Like he didn't know how to brace for impact, which is huh. crazy because, you know. They always go over the safety briefing. They, they either show you or they play a video. There's a the little card in the seat back in front of you where they are supposed to look at and know what to do. So my lesson here is even you're probably never going to have to use it. At least look at the card, know how to brace for impact. It's not that hard. So at this point, the ground proximity warning system starts to go off in the cockpit. It goes off at a thousand feet and both pilots are still working through their checklist, trying to turn the engines back on. Air traffic control instructed them to turn to a heading of 280 degrees and that they could land on runway one at Teterboro. Uh, Sullenberger responded saying, we can't do it. Air traffic control asks which runway he would like, and he replies saying, we're going to be in the Hudson. Ugh. After another attempt to relight the engines, they increased the flaps, and at 3.30 p.m., they were only 250 feet high, and they were going 170 knots. And just for reference, 170 knots is about 195 miles an hour. So they're going pretty fast at this point. Yeah. The two pilots tried again to relight the engines, but had no luck, and the plane slowed down to 150 knots. First Officer Skiles asks if they should add more flaps, but Captain Sullenberger decided not to. Sullenberger then asks Skiles if he had any more ideas, to which Skiles replies, actually, no.
1: Oh, man. So he didn't want to add flaps because it would raise them up and slow them down?
0: Yeah, flaps would give them a little more lift. So it would bounce them up a little bit and give them a little more maneuverability at low speed. So the ground proximity warning system started going off, warning them of terrain, and made a 50-foot call-out. The last recording on the cockpit voice recorder was Sollenberger saying, we're going to brace. At 3.31 p.m., the aircraft crashed into the Hudson, and within a few seconds, the crew members and passengers started evacuating the plane. Mm. The overwing exits were opened, and the front passenger slides were utilized as rafts. Water started entering the plane through a hole in the fuselage and through cargo doors that had come open. And a flight attendant had found that one of the rear exits was cracked open, but it was not clear who opened it. But this allowed more water to enter the plane. Again, if you ever look at those inserts telling you what to do in an emergency that are on the plane, they always show in a water landing, you never open the rear door. Oh. We've mentioned at least in the crash simulator videos, I don't know if we mentioned it on the audio podcast, but remember the APU is back there in the tail of the plane. And so there's more weight back there. So if you open up the rear doors, more water can get
1: in. Gotcha. And for people who don't know what Crash Simulator is, it's our premium content at roosterseat.com for uh, essentially our our Patreon type thing. It's called First, uh, and it's where we recreate these uh, crashes from the shows in uh, Microsoft Flight Simulator.
0: Yeah, it's really, really uh, interesting. You should check it out. It really gives you a sense of the time involved for how long these things take. Yeah. So as the water rose in the plane, the flight attendants urged passengers to move forward over the seats, and everyone was able to make it out onto the wings or into the rafts. Both Sullenberger and Skiles noticed that many passengers had evacuated the plane without any life vests. So they started taking some from inside the plane and passing them out to people outside the plane. Again, in the card, it tells you yeah. uh, where your life vests are. Typically, you know, you, you either pick up the, the seat cushion you're sitting on or look right under your seat, and that's where life vests typically are. Both Captain Sullenberger and First Officer Skiles do a sweep of the cabin to make sure no one was left behind. So if you remember, I said that this incident took place in January in New York City. Oh, it is is—it's cold. cold. The air temperature at the time was 19 degrees Fahrenheit, which is about negative 7 Celsius. And the water was about 41 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 5 Celsius. And the people who were uh, waiting in the rafts were knee deep in water. Uh, one passenger found the wing too crowded, and he opted to swim to a nearby boat. What? Yeah, well, there were boats that were close by to where the plane ditched, and within a few minutes, a couple of ferries arrived and started taking people on board. Oh, because the, remember, like I said, this uh, river divides New York from New Jersey, so commuter. There's ferries that go back and forth for commuters all the time. So yeah. there were, you know, ferry boats close by when this happened. They were able to uh, come on over and help start taking people on.
1: Be a weird thing to be going to work on a boat, and then be like, huh, there's a plane boat. Is that a plane? Or, no, that's a plane.
0: <laughs> well, well, the thing I wondered was, can you imagine if you were late to, well, I guess this was in the afternoon, but in a theoretical situation, if this happened in the morning and you were late to work and you had to explain to your boss that the ferry was delayed because you had to pick up plane crash survivors. <laughs> no, I swear. Chris, I told you, if you were late one more time, I was going to fire you like, no, boss, you don't, you don't understand. <laughs> we had to stop. There was a plane in the, in the river. Traffic was hell on the river. <laughs> it was really weird. So other boats and two Coast Guard vessels showed up soon after and they assisted in the rescue and the plane was fully evacuated by 3.55 p.m. And when I say I mean like the last passenger got off the wings onto a a boat at 3.55 p.m.
1: So they were like you say on the wings they were using the plane as uh, like standing on it.
0: Yeah the plane was floating a bit so they had some time like it didn't immediately sink. So they evacuated, and everyone just kind of stood on the wings and waited for boats to show up. So it was not like they were high and dry above the water. Like I said, they were in in uh, their lower parts of their body, like feet yeah. to ankles, was probably in
1: water, but they could stand on it, and okay,
0: they just had to wait.
1: Yeah, when you said they were up to their knees, I was like, in the, the in the river deeper? No, yeah, yeah, the river <laughs> like, is
0: deeper. Just the plane yeah, didn't yeah. immediately sink. Yeah, okay, they had a little bit of time. So, like I said, everyone on the on the plane survived. There were four people who suffered major injuries and 95 who suffered minor injuries. I believe one of the people who suffered a major injury was one of the flight attendants who had a really deep laceration on one of her legs. Which not, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, that's not terrible. The plane was towed to a nearby pier and they had to recover the left engine from the riverbed. It got torn off during the landing or during the ditching, I should say. So... Then comes the investigation, right? The NTSB uh, was able to confirm that the plane had lost thrust due to a bird strike after analyzing the cockpit voice recorder and flight data recorder, and they found no evidence of pre-existing engine, system, or structural failures. Uh, And they ultimately, you know, they they do tests, they do DNA tests on the remains of the birds that they can find, and they they're able to determine that the planes that were hit were Canadian geese, which are pretty big. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen a Canadian goose in real life, but they're big and they're mean.
1: (laughs) They must be if they go after planes. I
0: remember the first time I ever saw a Canadian goose, I thought it was so beautiful. I was uh, up in Wisconsin. You know, we don't see those really here in Texas Mm -hmm. where where we're based out of. And I was like, wow, that bird's huge. And it looks so, like, so beautiful. And I would, like, try to walk up to it to get closer. And it started chasing me. Like, I mean, they (laughs) they have a bad attitude. I learned very quickly, you give those birds a a wide berth. (laughs) Got a very different kind of sponsor for this episode. It's the Jordan Harbinger Show, which is a podcast you really should be listening to. And I know every day somebody tells you, you just have to listen to some podcast. You nod and you say, sure, and you never listen to it. We've all done that before. Uh, Don't let that happen here. Jordan Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker. So you get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Each episode is a conversation with a different fascinating guest. And when I say there's something for everyone here, I really mean it. In one episode, Jordan talks to a hostage negotiator from the FBI who offers techniques on how to get people to like and trust you, which is both useful and disturbing at the same time. Another episode tells the story of a cinematographer who discovered a lost city in the jungle and made one of the most important archaeological finds of the century. He has a recent episode here with comedian Russell Brand, who I'm sure you're familiar with. He also has a two-part episode about journeying into and visiting North Korea, which is something you know I'm super interested in. And Jordan's always focused on pulling useful, practical insights out of his brilliant guests. We're not talking about pop psychology or wishy-washy self-help stuff here. The episodes are loaded with bits of wisdom you can use to legitimately change your mind and improve your life right away. And if that's not worth checking out, I'm not sure what is. So we really enjoy the show. We think you will as well. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode of Black Box Down is brought to you by HelloFresh. Get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door with HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh lets you skip those trips to the grocery store and makes home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. It's super easy and stress-free. HelloFresh offers convenient no-contact delivery to your doorstep for easy home cooking with the family. The recipes are super easy to follow with simple steps and pictures to guide you along the way. That way you can look at the pictures, make sure it looks the way it's supposed to. Uh, HelloFresh cuts out the stressful meal planning and grocery store trips. You can enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in about 30 minutes. Uh, It's great value. You can save 40% when you use HelloFresh versus shopping at the grocery store. Uh, It's delicious and nutritious. HelloFresh delivers fresh, high-quality, pre-portioned ingredients. You can make meals that are delicious and nutritious, and over 90% of the ingredients are sourced directly from growers to ensure peak flavor and ripeness. Uh, HelloFresh offers more than 20 chef-crafted delicious options every week to help you break out of your recipe rut, try new things, and make any night feel special. Uh, HelloFresh also helps you eat more sustainably. It's the first global carbon-neutral meal kit company, and by skipping the grocery store and using HelloFresh, you're reducing your food waste by at least 25%. HelloFresh delivers pre-portioned ingredients so you're not overbuying, which is a burden on the planet, and your wallet. The packaging HelloFresh uses to ship your food is almost entirely made from recyclable and or already recycled content, and since they offset their operations, travel, and shipping emissions, HelloFresh's carbon footprint is 25% lower than store-bought grocery-made meals. That's pretty good, right? Trust me, I'm sure if you try it out, you're going to ask yourself, why did you wait so long? Why didn't you try it sooner? It's super convenient. It's actually super fun to uh, sit down and cook your own meal and follow along with the instructions. So head on over to HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown80 and use code BlackBoxDown80 to get $80 off, including free shipping. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown80. Use code BlackBoxDown80 to get $80 off, including free shipping. So like we mentioned earlier... Bird strikes are a really big deal, and the FAA has a guide on airport wildlife hazard management. Of course, you know, the airline industry, the FAA, there's guides on everything and how to uh, improve safety. So airports must carry out a wildlife hazard assessment when an air carrier aircraft experiences multiple wildlife strikes, an air carrier aircraft experiences substantial damage from a wildlife strike, an air carrier aircraft experiences engine ingestion of wildlife, or... Wildlife of a size or quantity capable of causing any of the previously mentioned events is observed to have access to any airport flight pattern or aircraft movement area. So these are basically just guidelines telling airports if any of these occur, then you have to have this wildlife hazard assessment. And in LaGuardia's case, they're really close to Rikers Island. And Mm -hmm. that's an area that's filled with a lot of these geese. So LaGuardia had procedures in place to try to mitigate the danger of those geese that live on Rikers Island from impacting uh, planes. A little bit of a spoiler. uh, These geese that were involved in this incident weren't from Rikers Island. So uh, they were migratory geese. I believe these particular geese were from Northern Canada and uh, were migrating at the time. We're going to get a little more into that a little later. Just wanted to clear that up right now because I'm sure that's the first thing people are going to wonder after I said that. Gotcha. So the FAA recommends that during the assessment process, certified airport operators implement the standards and practices contained in an advisory circular. And some of these practices... Are to consider wildlife attractants within 10,000 feet of the airport and if the attraction could cause hazardous wildlife movement into or across the approach or departure airspace out to 5 statute miles from the airport. So basically what this is saying is within 10,000 feet of the airport the airport needs to analyze and figure out if there's anything that could attract hazardous wildlife within 5 mile radius of the airport.
1: What would that be? What would attract?
0: It might be like a food source or um, a habitat that's uh, conducive to nesting, mm. things of that nature. Basically anything that a bird would see as something that they would want to spend time with. So like food and shelter, basically. After the attractants are submitted to the FAA, they then determine if the airport needs to develop a wildlife hazard management plan using a guide that's in the same advisory circular. So basically the airport analyzes if there's any uh, anything potentially hazardous, they submit it to the FAA, and then together they figure out what they're going to do to uh, deal with it. And like I mentioned, LaGuardia had a wildlife hazard management plan in effect at the time of this accident. And their plan emphasized the use of techniques to exclude, disperse, or remove wildlife from the airfield and do things like help manage the Canada goose population on Rikers Island and sponsor studies to examine which kinds of grass are averse to these kinds of birds. So again, like the grass, they're they're really focusing on the things that the birds like Uh and don't like to try to get them to move somewhere else. They also monitor the airport for standing water and remove any standing water as quickly as possible again birds would see standing water and potentially want to drink it and gather there
1: hmm I never thought about managing birds in respect to airplanes I guess it was, <laughs> but it makes sense I just never thought about it and now I understand why there's a wildlife specialist
0: right there's a guy whose job is just to study bird strikes on planes because they need him he's like this is a job that's in demand yeah. So LaGuardia implemented bird deterrent devices and made perching areas undesirable for birds to rest on. Uh, And I'm sure you've seen this, like in cities, they'll put like little spikes on ledges that way birds can't land there. Hmm. Basically, this is the equivalent of a no loitering sign for birds. Yeah. Yeah. They also have observers monitoring the airfield. And if birds are found, then people are notified to remove the birds. The LaGuardia airport plan notes that Canada geese pose a serious threat to airplanes and they have a bird supervisor who's available 24 hours a day, Whoa. 365 days a year to perform wildlife control activities, maintain wildlife hazard management logs, recover and identify carcasses, and gather and report other wildlife strike information.
1: Okay. One, I can't believe that that's a job. It's just a weird job. Yeah, I'm in charge of the birds at the airport.
0: Like, they have birds at the airport? No, my job is to keep the birds away yeah, from the airport. No.
1: That's exactly why I have a job. Right. Uh, and also how do they go about getting rid of birds
0: i'm gonna get into some more details here in a bit but i already mentioned a few things like i said you know they want to try to investigate grass that the birds well,
1: don't like I, I mean more actively like there's a there, there are birds on nearby go go get them out Terry. You know, like, <laughs> well, they also even
0: before getting to that stage, even before getting to a nesting stage, like I said, they also have deterrent devices. Like I'm sure you've heard them like speakers that play noises the birds don't like.
1: I If I have heard them, I haven't noticed them.
0: If you ever go like here in uh, in Austin, there's a grocery store called um, H-E-B. It's like the big uh-huh. oh, uh, grocery yeah. store chain in, in Texas. Sometimes by the entrances of some of those stores, they'll have speakers that play like it sounds like bird noises, but those are like predatory bird noises that they play.
1: OK, yes. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah.
0: So that's the kind of thing that they would have in place to try to get birds to go away. The grackle. Right. <laughs> here it's grackles that they're dealing yeah. with. Also at the grocery stores, you'll see they, they have the same kind of deterrence. They'll put spikes above the door so that the birds don't land right above the doors. Hmm. In just a bit, I'm going to get into some of the more active things. Like you said, if they find a nest, what exactly do they do? I'm going to get to that here in just a bit. So I want to talk about some of the findings by the NTSB uh, regarding specifically to this U.S. Airways 1549 incident. So both engines were operating normally until they each ingested at least two large birds, which weighed about eight pounds each, one of which was ingested into each engine core, causing mechanical damage that prevented the engines from being able to provide sufficient thrust to sustain flight. So I'm sure you wonder, like, how do they test this? Like, what's the procedure for this?
1: And I think For, for, for,
0: for birds going into an engine
1: oh yeah how we got a new plane in development uh how do you test the engine right
0: what they do is they shoot a frozen four pound bird into an engine running at nearly full power and for an engine to pass all an engine has to do is to stay together and it doesn't mean the engine has to stay running it just has to not fall apart and like explode basically
1: but it doesn't have to stay running
0: okay the assumption is that it's extremely rare that a bird would go into each engine and cause dual-engine failure. So if one, you lose one engine, a plane can still fly with one engine. Mm. The thought is, if you lose one, then the plane declares an emergency and just returns to you know where it was taken off from or lands at a nearby airport. Yeah. It's almost unheard of to think that a bird would go into both engines and cause dual-engine failure like happened here. And in this case, in the U.S. Airways 1549, the plane ingested about four birds in total is what's estimated. <laughs> And an adult Canadian goose weighs, like I said, between eight and ten pounds. So they tested with a four-pound frozen bird, but these were much heavier than uh, what's tested with.
1: Those are big birds. That's that's a big meal ingesting four <laughs> eight pounds.
0: It was a hungry. Thirty-two plane.
1: pounds of bird.
0: Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna go back to the NTSB findings. Here's the, the the next one. The size and number of birds ingested by the accident engines well exceeded the current bird ingestion certification standards. So that's basically just reinforcing what I said. Lots of birds. The plane ate a lot of birds. It was hungry. Despite being unable to complete the engine dual failure checklist, the captain started the auxiliary power unit, which improved the outcome of the ditching by ensuring that a primary source of electrical power was available to the airplane and that the airplane remained in normal law and maintained the flight envelope protections, one of which protects against a stall. Like I said, early on in this process, Captain Sullenberger turned on that auxiliary power unit, which in the event of engine failure will power the uh, electronics in the plane. Turning on the APU was actually much further down the checklist, but Captain Sullenberger decided to start it immediately, which worked to their advantage because he was able to keep his instruments on. And like we've talked about before in a previous episode, it kept the plane in normal law. So the plane was helping to maintain speed and maintain the correct pitch so that they didn't stall. I have read an interview with Captain Sullenberger where he said that that was great and all, but it did annoy him a little bit (laughs) because when the plane was finally uh, touching down into the water, he was trying to pull back further on his control stick to get the nose up more so that the tail came down into the water first. But the plane kind of stopped him from doing that because the plane thought he was going to stall if he did that.
1: Oh, okay, Yeah. The law mode keeps you from doing mess-ups.
0: Right. Like we talked about in the Air France 447 flight, uh, they didn't realize that they were in alternate law, which removes some of those protections, which is why that plane stalled and they didn't realize that that was happening. Yeah. So I like that this one builds a little bit. Like we we can we can touch back on previous things that we've talked about to yeah. kind of uh, explain a little further. I want to draw a little parallel here. Like I said, Captain Sullenberger was trying to nose up so the tail came down first into the water. If you remember, when we talked about the hijacked Ethiopian flight, that plane cartwheeled because the engine's Hit the water started scooping water and caused the plane to slow down and start cartwheeling
1: oh yes yes because they suck they (laughs) right
0: by having his tail touch down in the water first it helped slow down the plane even more and then bring down the front of the plane into it which provided for a very relatively smooth landing Hmm. Uh, one of the flight attendants on the plane said it didn't feel like any worse than maybe a slightly rough landing on a runway
1: that is wild it's also counterintuitive to what i would think if i was flying a plane without any training I would, you just want to land as like as, as kind of straight and forward smooth mm-hmm. as possible. So you kind of glide along the surface, but yeah, thinking about it, then it yeah, with all the water to get gooped into the, cupped into the engines and then yeah, cartwheel.
0: Huh. It's like scooping your hand and running it through a tub of water versus having your hand, you know, level and yeah, going yeah. through the water. It's much smoother. Okay. I'm going back to the NTSB uh, findings here. The captain's decision to ditch on the Hudson River rather than attempting to land at an airport provided the highest probability that the accident would be survivable. So, you know, like in most of these cases, the NTSB tries to recreate this in simulators after the fact. And they found that when they put pilots in the simulator and they recreated this incident... As soon as the bird strike happened, if they immediately turned around and went back to LaGuardia, they would make it 50% of the time.
1: Huh, that's not great
0: odds. It's not great odds. But when they added a 35-second buffer in there, like these captains had, to, in order to try to figure out what was happening, they never made it back to LaGuardia. So, realistically. Yeah, real. so if they had immediately turned it back to LaGuardia, 1550, that they would have made it. Uh, <laughs> but if they, you know, if they quickly try to determine what's going on and then make a decision, there's no way they would have made it.
1: Which is what you would do that's the training it's like you don't just let's go back
0: right yeah then they, they started the procedure so I mean it was it was the correct thing to do okay um the next finding here the accident bird strike occurred at a distance and altitude beyond the range of LaGuardia's airport's wildlife hazard responsibilities and therefore would not have been mitigated by LaGuardia's wildlife management practices so basically there's just saying this was outside the radius of LaGuardia's wildlife hazard responsibility no amount of mitigation would have stopped this incident from occurring. Because like I mentioned earlier, these birds weren't from the area. These were these were from uh, Northern Canada and they were migrating. Mm-hmm. The next finding, although currently no technological, regulatory or operational changes related to wildlife mitigation, including the use of avian radar could be made that would lessen the probability of a similar bird strike event from occurring, considerable research is being conducted in this area. And there are some airports that are testing out bird radar for lack of a better term they call it avian radar
1: i was about to ask about bird radar because that's that's a new one for me so um the problem
0: is that they don't want to have a new system that distracts air traffic controllers from their already stressful job it has Mm -hmm. to integrate in a way that doesn't create false positives and that gives them good information without distracting them from their core job of keeping planes safe so yeah. it's, it's still in its testing phases of way to integrate it all, but it is something that does exist.
1: It does seem very hard to do because you're talking about big birds and these were eight pound birds. Right. You know, and it'd have to be a, a lot of birds in order to be an, a real problem, right?
0: Right. I've also seen some air traffic controllers complain that, you know, when you set your radar sensitivity too high, then you start getting... Tons of things appearing on your screen that aren't planes or aren't birds like one uh, air traffic controller gave an example where ship masts would show up on radar if they were not calibrated properly
1: ship mat like the tops of ships right
0: like the top of a sail of a, of a ship hmm. so it's like i mean that's part of it they want to make sure that the system doesn't show them stuff that's not real or not really a hazard yeah so the national transportation safety board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the ingestion of large birds into each engine which resulted in an almost total loss of thrust in both engines and the subsequent ditching on the Hudson River. Contributing to the fuselage damage and resulting unavailability of the aft slide rafts were 1. The Federal Aviation Administration's approval of ditching certification without determining whether pilots could attain the ditching parameters without engine thrust. 2. The lack of industry flight crew training and guidance on ditching techniques. And 3. The captain's resulting difficulty maintaining his intended airspeed on final approach Due to the task saturation resulting from the emergency situation. So there's really no crazy notes here. This is all things that are known, right? Contributing to the survivability of the accident was... One, the decision-making of the flight crew members and the crew resource management during the accident sequence. Something we've talked about before, crew resource management. Two... The fortuitous use of an airplane that was equipped for an extended overwater flight, including the availability of the Ford slide rafts, even though it was not required to be so equipped. So this was supposed to be an overland flight. So they didn't have to use a plane that had slides, but it just so happened they did have uh, they were using a plane that was equipped for extended overwater operations. So they had slides.
1: Slides. It's like...
0: Or rafts, I should say. Right. Okay. Three, the performance of the cabin crew members while expediting the evacuation of the airplane. And four the proximity of the emergency responders to the accident site and their immediate and appropriate response to the accident. So they lucked out. I mean, they were close to yeah. a bunch of people. So there were some recommendations here and I'm going to read. There's, uh, there's five of them here. Require manufacturers of turbine-powered aircraft to develop a checklist and procedure for a dual-engine failure occurring at low altitude. Again, the, the checklist they had, assumed that they had 20,000 feet of work to work with and was three pages long. They need something that's a lot shorter and more appropriate (laughs) for people who who are below that altitude. Two, work with the aviation industry to determine whether recommended practices and procedures need to be developed for pilots regarding forced landings without power, both on water and land.
1: And that's just kind of a general, hey, look in to see if there's anything better.
0: And I think the thought process here a lot of times is that dual Engine failure and having to ditch into water is such a rare thing that they normally don't train for it. Yeah. Okay. It's also difficult for simulators to simulate that because there's such little data on it. Three, work with the U.S. Department of Agriculture to develop and implement innovative technologies that can be installed on aircraft that would reduce the likelihood of a bird strike. Okay, I'm going to go on a tangent here. because I. The, so after hearing this, I know some of our listeners are going to think, why don't they put screens in front of the engine? screens in front of the engine it seems like that would stop a bird from going into the engine right the problem is you're you're introducing a whole other set of problems if you do that uh first and foremost that screen could break off and go in the engine second of all if you put a screen in front of an engine it could disrupt the airflow going into Mm -hmm. the engine and make the engine not work properly third if you put a screen in front of an engine that's like an ideal surface for ice to form in winter months and then ice would break off and go into the engine. So, yeah. what seems like an easy solution turns out not to be.
1: Also, that would have to be a crazy strong screen. Yeah. Because you're talking about two eight pound birds going at what, what speed? Let's say they know? were going like
0: 200 miles an hour, right?
1: Yeah. And just like slamming into a screen there's there's no way that a normal screen would hold up to that
0: yeah it's just i feel like i need to address that just because i feel like some people are going to think that and wonder it and so i just i just wanted to outline why the problem might be a little deeper than you initially think okay uh back to the recommendations uh number four modify the 14 code of federal regulations small and medium flocking bird certification test standard to require that the test be conducted using the lowest expected fan speed instead of 100% fan speed for the minimum climb rate. So like I said, when they do the engine test, they would run this engine at 100% speed. They want to start doing some tests with lower fan speeds to see how the engine reacts.
1: Okay, because if it's going slower, it may not... It might mess up more stuff.
0: Correct. It's similar to what we talked about with um, the recent episode we did with uh, TACA and Southern Airways, the TACA 110 and Southern Airways 242, where the water ingestion test used to be run at 100% fan speed, but then they realized that it doesn't work the same way when (laughs) their engines are at a lower speed, so they changed that test as well. Mm -hmm. So similar thinking here. Uh, The final recommendation I'm going to read here. During the bird ingestion rulemaking database working group's reevaluation of the current engine bird ingestion certification regulations... Specifically, reevaluate the 14 Code of Federal Regulations, and it gives um, like a little chapter here. Uh, large flocking bird certification test standards to determine whether they should apply to engines with an inlet area of less than 3,875 square inches and include a requirement for engine core ingestion. If the BRDB working group's evalu- reevaluation determines that such requirements are needed, incorporate them into the rules and require any newly certified engines be designed and tested to those requirements. So, just basically, Reevaluate the testing, make sure that it's applicable and that it actually means something. So, basically, just look at all the bird ingestion certification and reevaluate it all. So, there's one other side note I want to make here. Remember how in our Scandinavian Airlines 751 episode, I talked about how the investigation bureau was annoyed that the captain was put out in front of the media and that they couldn't talk to him first Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. you know they want to try to get all the information they can from him
1: yeah in case the captain is to blame.
0: (laughs) right the ntsb was in a really tight spot in this particular incident because captain sullenberger was viewed as such a hero and everyone survived and they touch on this in that sully movie that tom hanks was in it's like how do they investigate this what if they find that the captain did something wrong (laughs) Um, they didn't want to be the ones to have to potentially give bad news or say, like, this was the captain's fault.
1: Yeah, it's like your hero... If everyone survives but if you're the reason that there was a plane crash in the first place then are, are you still a hero right
0: and of course that ended up not being the case but I, I i saw interviews with some ntsb investigators who were very worried when they started this investigation like they didn't want to be the ones if anything came to light they didn't want to be the ones to have to say it yeah but nothing did come to light you know like i said all the findings were that this was the best outcome possible for the situation and that it was not the pilot's fault
1: obviously if tom hanks was cast <laughs> obviously
0: <laughs> So the crew was highly praised by their success after this uh, accident. Uh, President George W. Bush said he was inspired by the skill and heroism of the flight crew. Uh, and the crew was invited to the inauguration of President Barack Obama, which happened, you know, just a couple of weeks after this. Was it a couple weeks or was it like four days? It was just a little after it. I, I forget off the top of my head. I don't have that in front of me, but it was just a few days later. Uh, New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg awarded the crew the keys to the city and the crew received a standing ovation at the Super Bowl that year. And Sullenberger threw the first pitch of the 2009 uh, baseball season for the San Francisco Giants. Nice. Yeah. Uh, In 2013, the entire crew were inducted into the International Air and Space Hall of Fame uh, at the San Diego Air and Space Museum. And Sullenberger's 2009 memoir, Highest Duty, My Search for What Really Matters, was adapted into the feature film Sully that was directed by Clint Eastwood and starred Tom Hanks and Aaron Eckhart, which came out a few years ago in 2016.
1: Okay. I have two things. One, what is, what exactly, this is off topic, but the keys to the city. What does that do?
0: <laughs> I think it's just uh, a, an, an honorary title. I don't think they can actually open any door <laughs> with the keys to the city.
1: It'd be funny if you're like you, you, the sorry, sir, you know, you go to the library at like two a.m. when it's closed. You're like, ha the key to the city. <laughs> I I got access. Also, um, I, and I haven't seen this movie, but it's crazy to think that they adapted an incident that the actual crash was how many minutes? Eight minutes? <laughs> Not even. Yeah, it was just a couple minutes. Well, yeah, I was thinking from takeoff to ditching in the in the Hudson. It was just a couple of minutes and then it's somehow a full feature film. It's it's it's, it's now I got to watch that movie now.
0: Let me give a frame of reference for you, Chris. Like you said, this only was a couple minutes. We're doing like a 45 minute to an hour long podcast on it. That's true. And the movie actually starts with I, I've seen the movie. It's been a couple of years I've seen it. But the movie starts with the incident and then deals with the aftermath. Oh. It deals with the investigation and, you know, what is Sully going through after the fact and Uh, everything that happens um, after uh, you walk away from this crash. The thing that that strikes me about this incident is I wonder what it's like to be that first officer, Jeffrey Skiles, because everyone remembers Sully he's got that <laughs> name you know, that's the name of the movie but you know first officer skiles is was he was there too yeah he was doing stuff he helped out but i feel like he he gets forgotten he was actually more experienced <laughs> right. as a pilot <laughs> less experienced in this kind of play but yeah i mean like big shout out to jeffrey skiles uh also a hero in this incident
1: and aaron Eckhart, because he thankfully he did not live long enough to see himself become a villain <laughs> little batman reference there I think everyone forgets Aaron Eckhart was in that movie,
0: too. Like exactly. you said, it was Tom Hanks. Everyone
1: forgets that like he was a villain, every, he got completely overshadowed by the Joker. Yeah. Anyway, this is off topic. You, yeah, really.
0: You're, you're really going out on a tangent. <laughs> so each passenger who was on this flight received $5,000 in compensation for lost baggage and a refund for the ticket price. So they didn't have to pay for it. Hmm. They were actually also offered an additional $5,000 if they could prove that their luggage lost was worth more than $5,000. Then later, they were offered an additional $10,000 in return for agreeing not to sue U.S. Airways. A few of the passengers, or many passengers, actually experienced PTSD after uh, the accident. And uh, that Sully movie kind of touches on that a little bit. Like, what is your mindset after something like this happens? Like, how do you cope with that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it it would be scary.
0: Right. And and again, referencing an earlier episode we did in Scandinavian Airlines uh, 751, the captain of that flight never... Flew again, commercially. He just couldn't uh, bring himself to do it, Captain Rasmussen. Did anyone sue? I don't know. I don't uh, see—so in the research, I didn't read anything about anyone suing. That doesn't mean necessarily that it didn't happen. I just didn't find any records of it.
1: I couldn't imagine someone not suing if. (laughs) Right, the way things are here. Yeah.
0: In an effort to prevent similar accidents, officials from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Wildlife Services, and the city's Park and Recreation and Environment Protection Departments captured and gassed 1235 canadian geese whoa 1739 eggs were also coated in oil to prevent air from going through the shell ensuring the eggs would not further develop
1: oh that is that is that's harsh
0: yeah so they kill geese and they you know destroy eggs to make sure that the population is managed
1: what does Peter think about that
0: i, I assume Peter does not like that at all But um, I don't remember if it was Richard Dolbeer, that same wildlife biologist I talked about earlier. I don't remember if it was him or a different wildlife biologist who um, I watched an interview with. I think it was Richard Dolbeer. But they talked about how once certain pesticides were outlawed in the United States, like DDT back in the 70s, there was a huge rebound in bird populations because bird populations were severely affected by some of those pesticides. And that now that there's way more birds than there used to be, So this problem's becoming more and more common. I I have some disagreements with those statements. I think that uh, that's an oversimplification. I think bird populations are still really decimated, and we've seen a significant decrease in the number of birds worldwide, but I'm just saying what that biologist uh, claimed in that one interview related to uh, bird strikes. Okay. Uh, So that's it. I mean, that's uh, U.S. Airways 1549. This episode lasted way longer than the actual incident itself did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, but it's it's a, it's a really interesting one. Uh, you know, I think it's one that people remember. It's strange to me, and we'll, we'll post it on social media. The only footage of this happening is there was a security camera that was pointed in that direction. You can see like grainy footage of the plane dishing in the Hudson. But remember, this was back in 2009. I imagine if that happened today, you know, with everyone having cell phone cameras that are a pretty good quality, that you would have so many different angles of this incident.
1: Oh, yeah. It's weird to think that that is the only angle, in it, but I guess yeah. it's just at that cusp before people got t- cameras on their phone.
0: I mean, smartphones were still a really new invention and the cameras on them weren't very good. And yeah. there was, you know, not very many people had them. Now it's it's a lot more prevalent. I feel like if something like that happened today, we would definitely see so much uh, footage of it. But uh, yeah. if you do want to see that footage, uh, like I mentioned, we'll post a link to it on our social media. It's at Black Box Down Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you should go check it out and uh, see a little more about this. Oh, uh, this wasn't in... I didn't mention this, but in the research, I read that the actual aircraft itself went up for auction, and it's on display in a museum in uh, Charlotte, in hmm. North Carolina.
1: That's a big museum piece.
0: So yeah, the plane itself is on display at the Carolina's Aviation Museum. Uh, they bought the plane after the fact, and it's an aviation museum that's on the grounds of the Charlotte Douglas International Airport in Charlotte, North Carolina. So you can go to that museum... And see the actual plane itself, uh, if you wanted to. I feel also I should mention that uh, Captain Sullberger retired the next year in March of 2010, after 30 years with U.S. Airways. And uh, on his final flight, he was reunited with uh, First Officer Skiles and some of the passengers from Flight 1549.
1: Yeah. When you were talking about earlier about the uh, number of planes, little smaller planes, they only have one engine? Or do they have two?
0: Uh, some like your, your propeller planes might have just one propeller.
1: Yeah. So that's inherently, they have just less safety. Less redundancy, right. One engine goes down and the plane goes down. Right.
0: One okay. is less than two.
1: <laughs> Way to make my observations sound dumb, guys. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you guys again next time. And if you want to check out uh, Crash Simulator, we have a link in the show notes. Yes.